Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, they're everywhere. Leading up to next Tuesday, federal and statewide candidates are busy with speeches, photo ops, and other events. We'll look at the latest from the campaign trail as Georgia votes. Also, we know the city of Atlanta has various plans to address the affordable housing crisis. I don't want anybody being told that their housing unit needs to change, that they're no longer going to be able to have their house. I think a diversity of stock as well. When we have this much housing stock that we have, then this is beneficial for us to be able to allow people to live how they want to live. Well, speaking of housing stock, how can microhousing, or as we plain folks say, tiny houses or modular dwellings, be part of the solutions when it comes to addressing affordable housing? Later in the program, sustainability developer Winona Satcher of Makers Studio joins me, as well as Will Johnston, executive director of the MicroLife Institute. All that's just ahead, but first this news. The Forsyth County Elections Board has rejected the latest round of voter registration challenges. The original reason for the five challenges is that inactive voters had requested and received absentee ballots. But that is legal in Georgia. Anita Tucker is a Democratic appointee to the elections board. There's a perception that there is fraud that has been proven to not be there. And we are uh, churning up all kinds of effort and, and work for nothing. That is that is absolutely been non-beneficial uh, to anybody. It's creating continuing the divisions that we have and making them worse. Now, according to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, a Forsyth County resident, Frank Snyder, has filed 31,000 challenges. We'll have more about that in just a moment. Now, less than a week before Election Day, Georgia voters are continuing to turn out in droves. As we hear from Christopher Austin, yes, there's a U.S. Senate seat, the governorship, and several other statewide races are all on the line. Early voting has nearly reached the record-breaking numbers of the 2020 election, when an unprecedented number of people voted by mail. Georgia's Republican-backed voting law, passed in 2021, placed new restrictions on absentee voting, which could be part of why most midterm voters have shown up in person. Ryan Anderson is a Georgia election data analyst. I would say it maybe hasn't had an effect on the total number, but it certainly would have had an effect on how people are choosing to or being able to cast their ballots. Election officials predict more than 2 million people will vote before Election Day. Christopher Alston, WABE News. Meanwhile, let's talk about the 2020 election again. The U.S. Supreme Court has cleared the way for Republican Senator Lindsey Graham to testify in Fulton County. Yes, it's a special grand jury investigating possible illegal interference in the 2020 election. Now, the court lifted a temporary hold on Graham's appearance before a special grand jury scheduled for later this month. In an unsigned order, the justice noted that Graham still could raise objections to some questions. The South Carolina senator, a top Trump ally, had argued that the Constitution's speech and debate clause shields him from having to testify. In non-related political news, kind of, open enrollment is now underway for health plans through the Affordable Care Act. There are different deadlines depending on when you need coverage to start. If you want coverage to start January 1st of next year, then December 15th is the, late, is the last day. And we have more from Jess Mador. More than 700,000 Georgians currently get health insurance through the Affordable Care Act. Next year's marketplace offerings feature some changes, including more chances for subsidies to make coverage more affordable. The U.S. Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services reports four out of five people will now be able to access plans for $10 or less per month. And for the first time, 
families with unaffordable employer insurance could now qualify to choose cheaper ACA family plans instead. Copay-free preventive services continue to include many immunizations and free annual health screenings. Jess Mador, WABE News. And a reminder, the 2023 open enrollment period runs from December, November 1st through January 15th. Finally, if you own an Atlanta Falcons Calvin Ridley jersey like me, well, it's now a collector's items because he's no longer on the team. The Falcons traded Ridley, who, by the way, suspended for this season for gambling. They traded him to the Jacksonville Jaguars. In return, the Falcons get a 2023 fifth-round pick and a 2024 conditional fourth-round selection. The Falcons also grabbed cornerback Rashid Fenton from the Kansas City Chiefs. And in return, they got a conditional seventh-round pick. Atlanta also sent, they've been busy, safety Dean Marlowe to the Buffalo Bills for a 2023 Seventh round pick. By the way, the Falcons are atop the NFC South Division. Who would have thunk it? This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Real Scott. Now, as I, I just mentioned earlier, the Forsyth County Elections Board has rejected the latest round of voter registration challenges. Now, the original reason for the five challenges that there were inactive voters had requested and received absentee ballots. We want to be clear, that is legal in Georgia. We'll get to more of that in a moment. Meanwhile, yes, there are two big races here in Georgia, the U.S. Senate and, of course, the gubernatorial race, plus lots of big names, big rallies, lots of folks taking pictures and selfies, and I guess they still kiss babies. I'll ask our WABE politics reporter, Raul Bali. Welcome. I'm, you know what? I'm trying to remember if anybody is. Oh, no, taking pictures with babies, but I'm trying to remember if I've seen anybody kiss a baby. Don't kiss a baby lately. anymore. They don't do that? I don't think so. They'll hold a baby? <laughs> They'll hold a baby? I don't think I've seen anybody kiss a baby recently. So, next Tuesday, is something going on? What? <laughs> <laughs> I did that to you earlier today on text. Uh, it's it's with everything we've covered and been around. It it, it is kind of surreal to realize. Yeah. You know, earlier this week, our managing editor uh, Alex Helmick sent uh, sent out our assignments about where we're going to be in mm-hmm. election night. That's when it kind of starts for yeah. us as reporters getting real. We're thinking about where we're going to be election night and. And fellow reporters were like, hey, where are you going to be election night? So um, I've got a three hour night shift. (laughs) I'm looking forward to being on with you. I I love being on with you guys. I I love election night. I do, too. I love it. Well, let's let's begin here. A lot to talk about. Let's talk about these voter challenges. First of all, Raul, what is this all about? So I I could go and say. I, I want to challenge your the legitimacy of you as a uh, active voter or mm-hmm. anybody can do that anybody can and, and that's always been the law um th- what changed with with senate bill 202 is they added one word they added the word unlimited number of challenges the word unlimited was what was added and again that really didn't change anything but it it really kind of put a finer point to people realize that they could challenge you know, they could challenge saying you moved away or you don't live there anymore or you have a house. So you're somewhere just else. challenging anybody? Yes. You you just go in and say, I want to challenge people that live on this block. Yeah, you can say the pe- people who live on this block or you feel like, you know, what, what, what have. So I actually talked to one of the people. So this is not the Forsyth person. This was actually a person who did challenges in Cobb. Mm-hmm. And what he did was he used. The marketing mail system. There's the the system where you know you send um, direct marketing mail. Yeah, you can get the names and addresses. Exactly, but so, it could be an old list. Exactly. So what? But what this person was doing was he was cross-referencing voter list with that list with that system and saying, well, these don't match up, or someone's not getting an address. Uh, someone doesn't have an address there. There are other people because, for example. There was a challenge based on addresses because some of them may be a dorm. So one of the challenges was based on dorms at Kennesaw State University. 
and they didn't have dorm numbers. Mm -hmm. Or in some cases, there was challenges of apartment complexes that didn't have the apartment number. Sure. So th those were some of the challenges that were being done. That Those are examples of the challenges that are being done. Now, let's get to Forsyth County. Mm -hmm. This gentleman, Frank Snyder, mm -hmm. and that's public record, folks. Don't think we're picking on him. Uh, he has filed 31,000 challenges yeah, so the the first challenge I went to was back in the spring. He was challenging 13,000 people. Um, and again, he's doing this kind of on a mass database, you know. So the challenges he did, for example, yesterday mm -hmm. were based on, on, on a, a handful of things. First of all, he challenged the, – the original reason he challenged six people was that these were inactive voters who – asked for an absentee ballot and got one. Mm -hmm. He withdrew one of them instantly. So then there was only five challenges left. And then he said, well, these people, you know, got ballots, you know, even though they're in fact in, in, inactive voters. Instantly, Anita Tucker, who you heard there, said mm -hmm. she read the code to him and said, that's perfectly legal. It's also on the Georgia Secretary of State site. It's perfectly legal. That's how the challenges even started. Do you just, you can do a mass challenge or you do individual challenge? I you can do whatever. 31,000 challenges is just. A, a... Yeah. So one of his challenges was 13,000. The challenge yesterday was six. Mm -hmm. It's whatever database you're using or whatever you're using to do these challenges. And inform our listeners then how a decision is made on whether or not that there is some successful challenges. So it gets presented to the local county elections board where you live. Mm -hmm. That's who makes the decision. So yesterday was. Uh, the Forsyth County Elections Board, which has two Republican appointees, two Democratic appointees, and appointee from uh, the Superior Court judge in, in their case. And you've talked to folks and asked them why they're challenging, like under what basis? Yeah. So I asked so the gentleman yesterday, Frank, uh, Frank Schneider, I, I've walked up to him two times or three times for asking for an interview. He passed each time. Sure. I, I talked to a different person who was the, the gentleman involved with Cobb. You've heard him here on WABE. And, and he said, look, I'm just trying to clean up the rolls. I feel like that there are problems with our voter rolls and I want them cleaned up. That's what he told me when I asked him. Okay. All right. And, and, and the, the important thing, a couple of important points is, is the conversations I have then with elections officials. Number one, they honestly don't have the time for this. Mm -hmm. They don't have the resources for this. And think about it. I was covering a hearing yesterday mm -hmm. in the middle of an election. The staffers are already busy running early voting. Yesterday, here's the interesting thing. So that hearing was at 9 o'clock. At 1 o'clock, they were doing training of poll workers. Sure. Okay. While also running early voting. You can see these, these election workers are stretched thin. Because they're trying to run an election, they're trying to prepare for an election, and and here was the other interesting thing, the interesting thing that they had to do in yesterday's meeting was mm -hmm. they also have to prep in case there's a December runoff, right? And so they were busy working on that. The local officials tell me a couple of things. They need either the Secretary of State or more importantly the legislature to, to give yeah. them guidance. How do they take up these challenges? And more importantly, they need money and resources and time to do this. Let's move on to Georgia's early voting. What are we, the numbers? Are we, we're going to hit 2 million maybe? At any moment now, we expect to hit, because they went in at 1.95 million at the end of last night. So we've probably already hit 2 million at this point. Um, the numbers, you know, and still relatively smooth you know mm -hmm. we've heard about long lines i went and early voted on sunday in and out in 11 minutes mm -hmm. um most people have had generally good experiences because I've, I've gone to gwinnett i've gone to decap and yeah and, and i think it was a story that chris and christopher austin stored and, and also depending on whom you ask you could say well what's the reason for that some will say well see we told you there were no issues in voting in georgia and others will say well the reason people want to make sure they don't have an issue is why they're going and, and turning out in person with early voting especially with issues with the drop with the, the ballot boxes the, the few of them now and also just not wanting to have to deal with any potential problem as it relates to absentee Ballots. In the number, but the number one reason in the end is convenience. You know, I, I, I talked to early voters Sunday in Gwinnett County, and it's just it's convenient. I'm driving past the Martin, the Mountain Park 
activity center. There's not many cars in the parking lot. I turned in. That's mm-hmm. what people say. I mean, you go to different early voting locations. The number one thing you hear is it's easier, it's convenient, and I don't want a headache on Election Day. Absolutely. Let's talk about some of these big names that have been coming to Georgia here last week. It was pre- former President Barack Obama. Absolutely. And and it was an interesting rally because there's two things that jumped out at me. Number one, he took head on the issues of the economy and crime and said, look, they're issues, but I still need you to vote. OK, don't despair. I still want Democrats to get out and vote. That was his that was his key message. Let me ask you this, mm-hmm. because it seems that whether regardless of what side, is it always the notion that these big names are just talking to folks who probably have already voted? It's that it's your base. It's, it's your secure base. How are you going to reach the folks who maybe are on the fence about voting or just don't know who to vote for? Both former President Obama and then yesterday, Vice President Pence. They both knew and both said that, look, I know y'all have voted. Mm -hmm. Okay, I need you to go get one more person. Go get someone else. Get someone who you already know is on our side. Look, in the Obama rally was 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 look at the audience that was there it was black voters mm-hmm. and young voters mm-hmm. which are key demographics those who was in the audience and, and and the former president's like i need you to go get more people i need you to take people to the polls and, and mike pence's words was don't let people go to the polls alone mm-hmm. you know absolutely they know the people in front of them are, are are the faithful you're preaching to the choir but their message is Get more people out. Get the base out. Did former Vice President Mike Pence mention Herschel Walker by name or Brian Kemp? Well, obviously Brian Kemp, Kemp because yeah. he was he was the whole campaign. But he stopped. did not mention Mr. Walker. He did not mention Herschel Walker. He did in the press conference in the in the little gaggle we had afterwards, and he, it was a very generic comment of "I support the whole ticket." But in the in the campaign speech, no, it was all about Brian Kemp. And in, in the, one of the big focuses actually was the reopening of Georgia in the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm-hmm. That was a big chunk of what uh, of Governor Kemp talked about and the former vice president talked about. Let's talk about a name that hasn't come to Georgia and, and appears will not be here, and that is former President Donald Trump. Absolutely. I mean, it, those. it is interesting in, in what is basically the battleground state in America. The former president has been somehow convinced not to visit here effectively has been told that, you know, you're not going to maybe basically told you won't help the candidates. Mm -hmm. But that is also true with the current president, Joe Biden, who is also not here. You know, we've we have asked both sides, hey, when's the president coming? When's the former president coming? And I think it's become clear that that in the battleground state in America, those two names will not help. My interesting thought is if the Senate goes to a runoff Mm -hmm. do we then see the president yesterday i I spoke with analysts on the show and and we talked about a district that maybe the democrats might have overlooked early and now they're they may be scrambling to try to make sure they secure votes and that is what sanford bishop's district I, i think democrats have known for a while you know that they need to be need to be worried i think maybe surprised by the inroads that Chris West has made, especially in the farming community, mm-hmm. um, in those in those areas in between that that those rural areas where Sanford Bishop has generally done well. Mm-hmm. You know that district for for your audience runs basically from like parts of Macon down to Columbus, down to Southwest Georgia, mm-hmm. and connects you know the major rural you know black communities in those three areas. Well, he's the longest the serving member now of the Absolutely. Georgia's congressional delegation, and he's always had great relationships with everybody down in Southwest Georgia. He's like that. Also, the state legislators that are down there, whether Democrat or Republican, they're still kind of that left, left breed, that breed from of conservative Democrats. But he obviously knows he's got a challenge. There's mo- lots of money going into Southwest There's Georgia. There's a lot of, lot, lot of money. And, and, Bro, I'm curious, what is going on? What's your, what are you hearing with the 6th Congressional District? Have there been some redrawing of lines? What are you hearing in, in terms of the 6th and the 7th? I think in the end, Rich McCormick wins pretty easily because of how that district is done. And Lucy mm-hmm. McBath wins pretty easily. The in, Here's the interesting thing. So Mark Gonzalez, who's running against Lucy McBath, mm-hmm. He effectively knows he's 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 he knows the numbers. He's not going to tell you he's going to lose. But the interesting thing he said to me is 
the reason what he's doing is important is every Republican vote he can get out helps Herschel Walker, helps Brian Kemp. And that's the importance of all of these districts where you want folks to vote the ballot. You vote you want, the ballot. Yeah, you want folks to vote the so ballot. So that may be the important thing about Marcus Flowers. Look, Marcus Flowers, who's running against Marjorie Taylor Greene, he, look, the numbers are really against him. But every Democratic vote he gets out may help the other uh, Democratic candidates on the ballot. That's why every race is important. That's why every vote is important, even if it's not a race that's supposed to be close. I do have a listener that wants, uh, she, she writes, Rose, can you please go over the, the challenges? I'm a little confused. Anyone can just challenge anybody. And yes. I think this is important. This is what we do. We have a platform, so we might as well explain this thoroughly. Again, this has always been Georgia law, but since Senate Bill 202, they've put in there that one word. Unlimited. Which means you can file as many challenges as you want. Folks you don't even know, you just... You want to clean up the voter rolls. I mean, that's what, and that's, and according to and, dude up in. And by the way, yeah. to, for our audience, uh, my colleague Sam Gringlass, go to wabe.org, has written a great kind of deeper piece looking into this. So if you really want kind of a deeper explanation, it's got interviews in it, go check out Sam Gringlass's story on voter challenges. But yes, effectively, this allows any person. Um, to make these challenges. Now, the important thing is you have to be a resident of the county where you're challenging. So the gentleman who's challenging in Forsyth County is a resident of Forsyth right. County. Right, you can't live in Forsyth and say, look, I want to challenge this whole apartment complex right. in, 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 in Cobb County. Yeah, I can't challenge you because you and me don't live in the same county. And you better not challenge me. <laughs> you don't, were you, were you out your mind? <laughs> You ain't crazy, Raul, are you? <laughs> yes, I am. Apologies for that language. Uh, all right. What are you paying attention to that candidates are doing between now and next Tuesday? It's always interesting to see where candidates go campaign. Mm -hmm. You know, you, it, it's it's interesting to see that Stacey Abrams is is aiming, you know, for where her base voters. She's I think her she's got stops in Henry County. Um, in a couple other – that was right off the top of my head. Mm -hmm. uh, Covington, Macon, um, you know, Herschel Walker is doing a swing through South Georgia right now. He's going to be back in Smyrna on Thursday, I believe. It's always interesting to see where candidates are stopping, where they're making those those last pushes and, and, and talking to voters. It has always been a given in a sense that once for the Democrats, they were challenged when they got outside of the – metro Atlanta area and some have said no that's changed because Georgia's demographics have changed but Georgia is a rural state let's be really clear about that and the strategists I talked to yesterday they all said you know what we've noticed a trend here and some of these rural counties more Republicans have come out and voted early and obviously in the Atlanta area you've got more of the Democratic base does that signal anything to you or is, is it surprising the way I look at it is Every vote matters now. When you see Brian Kemp going to talk at Clark Atlanta University, when you see Brian Kemp going to a Diwali celebration with the Indian American community, when you see Stacey Abrams working through, you know, those poor rural black areas, Hancock County, Doherty County, mm -hmm. it's because you've got to go get every single vote. You can't leave any vote on the table at this point. That's the reason you see Democrats in places where you didn't see them before. And you see Republicans in places you don't see them before. I know there was always a strategy that you you know you have your base, you have your circle, you secure that. But then you pull percentage wise, you work with your team to make sure or somehow t try to ensure you can pull a certain percentage from this part of the state or this part of the state. I don't know if that's the strategy that can still work because you just don't know what the voter mindset is. I think it's back to what I said. It's every vote matters. What, what are the issues on voters' minds? What have you been hearing? It's still economy. It's still how much I'm paying for groceries, how much I'm paying uh, for gas prices. But you will talk to voters who absolutely abortion was just mm -hmm. it was not on their radar now it's on their radar. Gun violence is absolutely coming out. Some of the other, and you know what? I'm starting to hear voters who who do worry about the threats to democracy. Mm -hmm. uh, I talked about that. I was at Mountain Park 
uh, at the early voting site. I talked to a veteran who's just like, I'm worried about this now. So I'm also hearing some of those concerns about democracy as well. But really, economy is one. And that's why you saw the former president Mm -hmm. talk about inflation, talk about economy. As we're going to wrap up, Raul, do you want to go ahead and give your take on uh, a runoff? Which races are headed to the runoff? I just... I'm I'm going in Tuesday night prepared for anything, honestly. I just because it honestly is every day I wake up, I wake up with a different feeling. Oh, it's going to run off. Oh, he's going to win by a blowout or she's going to get forced to run. It it just depends changes. on what it just it changes. It changes when you're on the road, when you're talking to voters, you know, you talk to voters and you run into these voters who who care about abortion and um the economy, mm-hmm. and you're like, well, I wonder how they voted because they didn't tell you how they voted. Right. I talking to voters just kind of through everything. It's not as black and white once you talk to voters. And if you want to know just how big of <laughs> this state is in terms of this upcoming election tonight, I'm doing political <laughs> gab fest at Georgia Tech. You all have a podcast. You all have an event over at Clark Atlanta University. No, we're at AU Library. AU Library. Mm -hmm. Um, You've done the BBC. I'm talking to. First of all, I did not know there was a French public radio, but apparently (laughs) there is. And then there's Sweden. There's a Swedish version of NPR. So you know, everybody's here. You're you're. My wife's going to Trevor Noah tonight. So she not even not going to your event or my event. She's going to Trevor Noah. Yeah, I mean, it's think about the all the people that are here. So I mean. You know, you've got GabFest at Georgia Tech tonight with with a great lineup. And for those of you who listen to uh, our podcast, Georgia Votes 2022, we're going to be at the AU Library, the Woodruff Library, tonight at 6 p.m. Come see Sam, me, Emma Hurt, and Susanna Capalou, and Kevin Rinker. Kevin's going to be there tonight, too. Kevin who rides a bike, yeah. (laughs) Are you going to ride a bike over there, Kevin? No, he's not. No, he he said um, (laughs) no. And I do. I want to encourage everybody to do that. I mean, I wish you could attend both but I'm always going to rep for the station. So, But if you just happen to only have enough gas to go to one place, <laughs> then come to Georgia Tech for a political gab fest. <laughs> Live at 7 p.m. Rose Scott and the political gab fest team. Uh, Raul, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Keeping our listeners informed. That's what we do. Thank you. Always love coming on. Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Now, recently on the program, you all know, I had a conversation with Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens about the city's plans towards affordable housing. And he mentioned the necessity of having various housing stock. I have another question from a listener that says, at Monday's town hall in Buckhead, the mayor said he does not plan to get rid of single-family zoning. Other cities like Charlotte are taking steps to end exclusionary single-family zoning. Could you clarify your comments from the town hall? Well, I think you I know, just did. folks be listening. Oh, yeah. I mean, and, and you know, uh, we're a city full of, uh, you know, someday planners. Um, you know, <laughs> I went to Georgia State, too, for my master's in public administration with a concentration in planning and economic development. I believe in diversity, and I also believe that we'll, we don't want to be Charlotte. Charlotte wants to be us. So that's a poor example of a, a, a comparison. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want anybody being told that their housing unit needs to change, that they're no longer going to be able to have their house. I think a diversity of stock as well. When we have this much housing stock that we have, then this is beneficial for us to be able to allow people to live how they want to live. And so some folks want to live with a backyard and, and, and a front yard. And some people need to we need to have mixed, um, uh, uh, you know, multi uh, family developments. Does that include tiny homes? Or I love tiny micro homes and accessory housing. dwelling units. Mm-hmm. Dwell, you know, accessory dwelling units in the backyard to be able to have a, a, a separate, you know, where someone else can live back there. Um, you can rent it out or, uh, you know, but but I also don't believe it needs to be subdivided to where you have your house and then that becomes something that mm-hmm. you can sell separately. That was a poor policy that was um, uh, kind of proffered up in the past. Hmm. Now, speaking of various types of housing stock and all that, here's a question. And we talked about this. How can micro housing or 
plain folks, some people say tiny homes, or modular dwellings, how can they be part of the solutions when it comes to addressing housing affordability? So let's talk about it. Joining me in studio is Atlanta-based sustainability developer Winona Satcher of Makers Studio and Will Johnson, executive director of the Micro Life Institute. Welcome to you both. You were here, what, four or five Thank years you. ago? Yeah, yeah, four or five years ago. It's nice to have six, a little one of those. Well, It's nice a little reunion. I know. Yeah. And the rent was high then. Yes. And it's gotten higher. Yes. So perfect timing. Let's talk about this before we get into kind of what the mayor talked about and how you all see housing stock and various types of it. Just can you reflect overall on how, where we are now as a nation in terms of this housing crisis? And Winona, I'll start with you. Yeah, well, it, it definitely is only a national but a global crisis. Um, especially around affordable housing. Uh, one of the things that I noticed Mayor did say when he talked about uh, a single-family uh, uh, zoning, uh, at the state, in the national level of the state, you have at least Oregon and California have gotten rid of that, mm-hmm. and at the city of Minneapolis. And I think one of the things that I, I disagree with the mayor on is exactly what that is, and that means to be able to provide, when he said we need to provide an opportunity for a mixture of different housing to combat as a, as a solution to affordable housing. That is one way to do it. Why? Because it's not about telling people what you can't do with your property. It is about telling people what they can do with their property, which is mm-hmm. different. And so being a, able to do that uh, is critical to solving, especially in Atlanta, where and, and Mayor Dickens mentioned, uh, you know, they want to provide 20,000 units in eight years. But we do know, uh, as what data shows, the average rent for a one bedroom is at least $1,758 a month. Uh, we're talking about 3 million plus more people moving to the, the area in t- by 2050 with a median home income of $400,000. So while that is a great goal, it's probably almost a double need hmm. right now. Every year it gets worse. A double need. A double so need. You're saying we're going to probably need way more than two. We're gonna now need this way is what more. they want to offer. Right. So. And so in order to do that, we need to be real creative about solutions. All right. Well, what, what, reflect on this on where we are with this housing affordability crisis. Well, I, I also want to kind of reflect on this culturally. It's very fascinating that we are we are a a city that doesn't want to hate, but yet we hate housing. We don't want other people to allow for more type of structures. What do you mean? So, so this whole single family, you know, zoning, we need to, just like Winona said, we need to be allowed to be creative with that space. We have large lots in Atlanta. We need to be able to use those lots. We also need to be able to allow them to have a diverse mix of groups to be able to live on those lots. And we need to not be afraid of the people who move into those lots. So we as a city, well, as a nation, we're very fearful of what could happen, but yet we don't want to be a part of the problem. And that also comes back to zoning education. You know, the mayor said that, you know, we're all planners. Yes, we are, but there are a lot of uneducated planners out there that have their own a opinion that don't <laughs> understand. <laughs> yes, that don't understand what needs to be done. And, you know, we can get into the actual like fixes of, of um, money. Well, but. listen, but here's a question too. Is it too late? No. Can we no. still... Be, and that's the other question. And then it's not just a question for the, the mayor and the city, but th- they're the governing body here. Where do we want this city to be in eight years in terms of housing affordability? Right. What does that identity look like? Well, it's not too late, but it's getting harder. Mm-hmm. And and Will mentioned a critical piece, which is education. And I will say I think a big part of the problem is that, well, two problems. One, especially at the local local level and local jurisdiction of public officials, we need to redefine housing. Typically, yes. you see house, people say housing and, and officials will say, well, housing is a tool for success. No, it's infrastructure. And if you start to begin to look at housing as infrastructure, then the, how you fund it and how you policy it is going to be quite different. And in fact, I think it's going to require what I call a holistic approach. And, and my recommendation, there are six components to this holistic approach. Construction. Hold on. Let me write this down. Construction. <laughs> construction, policy, uh, financial enforcement, engagement and mm-hmm. land. Construction, policy, financial enforcement, engagement, and land. All of those require not just strategic partnerships, but partnerships that actually make sense mm-hmm. to create the affordability that we're talking about. Also, what are we talking about when it comes to affordability? So let's stop there, because that's a good point. And I've asked people this, because sometimes people have, everyone wants the same thing. They say, mm-hmm. we want to be part of the solution. Sure. Sometimes you don't know where to start. You don't have the blueprint. Mm-hmm. So is there and maybe I know the answer. Is there a city? Is there somewhere, another nation that has the policy, the infrastructure, the engagement, the enforcement, has everything, all those components, and is meeting the demands 
for everyone, the different various demands that people have for affordability in terms of housing. Is there somewhere we can go to the map and put our finger on and say, there you go. Let's, well, let's do we this. also need to think about one important piece is that is transportation as well. Ah, yes. Car culture in the United yes. States is huge. We're not going to get huge. rid of cars, but cars, but we need to pivot. We need to look at what else we can do. And of course, 65% of Americans say they want walkability within their neighborhood and community, but yet 5 to 10% of America actually is walkable. Yet we still allow for demanding uh, parking rules and, mm-hmm. and other regulations that don't allow us to be more creative with our own land. And I hope we don't have to go but like the state of California where they passed a by right law for accessory dwelling units throughout the entire state. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that would pass in Georgia, mm-hmm. but we do need to allow homeowners and landowners to be able to utilize their space. So it starts with policy. Yes. Are you, is that, that, is, that is a critical that is a critical piece. But I think all of the components have to be in parallel. Uh, and to, to, go to your question, Rose, yes, there is. Well, no, there is not one city that's gotten it all right. But there are cities and states that have gotten a little bits of it right. Mm-hmm. And Atlanta has this history, as we know, of a civil rights history and a corporate history. And my, my interest is how how Atlanta can be the city to create that template where all of those components come together. Policy is critical and not just land use, but also the enforcement, which goes to the enforcement mm-hmm. piece of how to take that land use to make it more equitable. What's missing in terms of the land use that you would like to see that's not here, whether it's Atlanta and Art? And I know DeKalb County mm-hmm. might have some different. Right. Sure. But I, I would also say we need to normalize housing choice. So what a lot of people think of housing is single family homes. Mm-hmm. But yet we need to show that people can live in a micro pocket neighborhood like the one we built in Clarkston. Mm-hmm. We need to show that we can utilize container homes. We need to show so many different types of buildings uh, materials can be utilized. And so it's educating, it's advocating, it's demonstrating can we show people here in Atlanta? Can we take them to a place where yes. there's some modular and there's a yes, a micro definitely. living? Well, where is it? Well, for us personally at Makers, well, as far as our company, Maker Studio, uh, we have just required our own manufacturing facility because we build offsite. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and um, again, it's looking at and challenging and redefining what is construction that 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 allows for affordability. Because let's be clear, construction costs and land costs do not allow as they increase for affordable housing. So the way we build, we build more units for half the time and half the cost that are standardized, but quality and energy efficient. Because that's another critical piece that people mm-hmm. don't want to talk about. How we make sure people live safely and health and healthy housing in a manufacturing space, and then we deliver it. So one of the main one, first 80s we built was an old fourth ward, mm-hmm. where vacant lots can easily go $600,000. We built a one-bedroom, one-bathroom, 320-square-foot unit for 60000 That is unheard of. How? What was the square feet? 320 square feet for 60000 And, you know, again, it goes back to what Will was saying and what you were saying, Rose, about policy and the land use component of policy is reimagining the spaces that we actually have. Mm-hmm. Mayor Dickens said, you know, we have 2,000 acres talking about public-owned property, but let's look at the existing communities and existing context of private-owned properties with backyards that are near transit, as Will pointed out. There are near community services that are needed for affordable, those needing affordable housing to be self-sufficient. Well, do you often get people say, well, well, look, Will, I'm not against the, the micro living or, or that type of neighborhood, but when you have maybe large families, perhaps it, th- this is more suitable for a particular demographic. Well, I, I guess also I want just because we built our pilot project as a micro pocket neighborhood doesn't mean we always want to build micro. We like to build right size homes. The average American household size is only 2.4 people for the average size of house, which is 2,500 square feet. So, and what's crazy as the quintessential four person family only makes up 20% of the nation's households. What is, where does the other 80% live? Yet builders build 72% of products geared to that four person household. So again, back to normalization and of, of other types of housing products that, and I hate calling them products because they are homes mm-hmm. and so many of Americans just need a home to help flourish, mm-hmm. to help feel safe. Just like Winona pointed out, what is that space to help them contribute and have the time to contribute to our community and society? I have a listener who has a question for you, Winona. She wants to know, it's because I know her, she wants to know, do you run up against what challenges do you run up against in trying to secure land? Because mm-hmm. it seems to be that that would be a problem for you all, even with the great mm-hmm. modular homes you have. Mm-hmm. Land acquirement, how are you? Oh, it's, it's, it's hard. And and that is where those partnerships make sense. So a project that we're working on in Durham, North Carolina, we have partnered with a land trust there in Durham. 
right, where they own the property in perpetuity. Mm-hmm. But what they did was they purchased single family homes, turned those homes into duplexes as affordable housing for veterans. And we are coming in building accessory dwelling units behind those homes as more affordable housing for veterans. So now you've created this pocket neighborhood that is within the existing context. Why? Because there was a creative opportunity and a partner that already provided the land for us to participate. And that is where Mayor Dickens was talking about partnerships. That is going to be critical. So just because you have the land does not mean you know how to develop it. It also means it's going to sustain that over time. So that land piece is critical. Going back to backyards is critical in what Will is saying about building for the actual need and the necessity and looking at how families are changing. You have grandparents that are downsizing. You have people getting older who need support and to be able to live in place and age in place. That is a huge, great point, especially the work that I'm doing in DeKalb County. I was going to ask there you are, to talk about that. There are mm-hmm. so many residents who are ready to downsize. Yes. They're in 3,500 square feet homes, but yet there's nothing for them to stay exactly. within their neighborhood. Exactly. And so they hold on to the larger homes that families need to move in. Mm-hmm. Then they're taken away also from the school system. Exactly. So it's just this weird cyclical uh, um, I don't even know the cycle that we need to s- disrupt. What are the challenges? And I've heard people talk. They say, again, I'm not against micro living or a tiny home, but if it's next to me or if it's mm-hmm. in my neighborhood, it brings down my property value. Exactly. Is that true? No, no, it's not. It's not true. I mean, literally, if you look at, at any at all, like if you look at an eightplex, if you look at any new residential construction, it will increase your property value. And so obviously within the zoning, you can only build with, with what you're dictated to within the policy. Mm-hmm. But um, we need to allow and obviously duplexes seem to be mm-hmm. the dominant source of what people are doing throughout Atlanta. But we need to look at, you know, and Decatur just brought up the fourplex, mm-hmm. which Decaturites are having a hard time grasping right now. But mm-hmm. we need that. I remember, I think I had you on this program where we talked about the cottages that you all were doing. Yes. Which you, I think you were, uh, got so, an award for. Yes, we, were, we might have gotten a little award. Uh, mm-hmm. We got the, the Jack Kemp uh, Award of Excellence for Affordable and Workforce Housing. And, you know, it, it was, it's just really telling and showing that there's a spotlight on other types of housing product. That's well, what that well, tells for me. For our listeners that may not know, Let's give them a uh, talk about these eight micro cottages. Sure. So um, if you are interested, we do have our next door November 12th from at 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. So if you want to see what a micro pocket neighborhood looks like, please go to microlifeinstitute.org and you should click on a link and uh, join our tour. So the idea was that we were brought to Clarkston by the then mayor, Ted Terry, who is now a super district sick commissioner of DeKalb County. He said, hey, we're interested in bringing more homeownership to Clarkston. And so we said, great, let's look at your zoning laws, looked at and saw that there was a cottage court ordinance. We saw that there were some tweaks that we needed to do with some uh, language that allow for finan- uh, financing and, and some other um, measures. And then once that Go ahead. You're no, pointing at me. No, I'm just, I'm oh, just okay. I got stuff so going w- in my mind. Once, <laughs> once we worked with the council and got that passed, they just said, hey, do you want to do a pilot project? And we're like, sure. So what we did was partner with a great architecture firm that is now Cove Tool. Um, They're now a tech energy modeling firm. And they helped us design eight houses on 0.57 acres. Seven of those homes are are 500 square feet and one home is an actual definition tiny home by the state of Georgia. A tiny house in the state of Georgia is 400 square feet or smaller on a foundation. Any wheel-based movement, any wheel-based model, that is considered a recreational vehicle. And that is very close. That is very important for those listening. You need to understand your definition. So when you go to your different zoning uh, uh, planning departments and you say you want a tiny house, be very careful. careful. (laughs) You need to understand what you're asking for because definition are key to policy. Mm-hmm. Well, what about yes. with what you all are? Because are these, and I want to be clear, are They, I said I used the word modular mm-hmm. dwellings, and I, I yes. wasn't sure if they were container, because yeah. I don't know if they're interchangeable all the time. Yeah, so so, and that's a great question, Rose. And again, it goes, it goes back to education. So m- modular uh, and, uh, has different types of, of building strategies. So shipping container is one. Mm-hmm. We happen to use that uh, and retrofit those as energy-efficient affordable housing. Uh, but you also have those uh, companies that use mass timber products to build modul- modular units. In fact, we are working on new modular uh, products. And I'm like, Will, I hate using the word products, but I do modular, <laughs> modular products that are not just shipping containers, but also using more renewable and recycled materials to build more customi- customizable modular solutions. And I do want to point out prefabricated 
uh, solutions. Mm. Why is that important? So there are two markets, that pe- another market most people don't talk about, that we are starting to engage. So usually when you talk about affordable housing, it's always about new construction mm-hmm. um, and, and vacant land and available land. But there's a whole nother side of affordable housing that rarely ever gets mentioned until something happens. Forest Cove is an example. Mm-hmm. It's called existing affordable housing. And so what there are, there are companies like ours who, mostly in the Northeast and Midwest, Midwest and Southwest, who are starting to look at how can we create new uh, prefabricated uh, components that we can literally add to existing buildings to retrofit them without displacing people. And so we're working on those as well. Are there challenges with insurance? Yes. Well, so insurance isn't an issue, but I'll tell you the issues that we do have. Um, one, a local uh, permitting. Mm-hmm. And so the, the beauty of modular is that, and, and I will say thank you to the state of Georgia and to the International Code Council, we are working on, we're currently getting our certification at the state level for industrialized buildings, meaning that we will standardize all of our plans. 39 states, other states do that as well. Mm-hmm. So that we will be able to build 210 units a year with the same similar similar floor plans, a little bit of customization, have those stamped and sealed, ready to go. And that takes away the building permit requirements for any city in Georgia. So all okay. we will have to do is, is, is uh, go through site permitting, which saves on the cost and time. Uh, the other piece, the other challenge, though, is underwriting. Mm-hmm. The financial piece, and I mentioned that as a part of the holistic housing approach, that is a barrier. Banks and conventional banks, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, they don't seem to understand what modular means. Uh, that was my next question. Yeah. Can folks get And so the construction alone, financing yeah. piece is, is hard. That's why working with land trust is critical because they're a little bit more creative on that side. And they have partners in the financial industry that trust them that they can then talk to us about getting the underwriting to support. What about you? What about insurance for these micro? Um, My houses were just regular single family homes. Mm -hmm. So we just got regular insurance. So that's Mm -hmm. what people. So again, there's a stigma. People think small spaces are for people who are in have unfortunate, unfortunate circumstances happen to their life. What I am trying to work on is to make sure we have better neutral policy that allow all of us to benefit. So, you know, for example, we just won that OPB grant for $2.5 million. We're partnering with another um, nonprofit to help build 10 cottage homes for women just getting out of incarceration, reuniting with their children. So the idea, though, is we need better laws passed so anyone can use that language and policy, not just certain groups saying, oh, poor people have to live in small spaces. That's not true. And to that point, as we wrap up, because we talked about, does it start with policy? If there is a one policy, if there's only one policy that the policy godmother says, well, I'm going to give you this policy in the state of Georgia or within the cities. What is it? What do you want on the books? I would say that... Um I would say just better guidelines of diverse housing options and no minimum square footprint, no minimum lot size. Obviously, we need to build suitable so we can live in it. But I would say restrict, remove the restricting language as well as um, work with different cities to uh, recalculate different fees. I had to pay $5,000 per home for sewer tap fee in DeKalb County for my micro homes. So that's 40, you know, 40000 plus that I had to pay per house. Same for us. And same, mm-hmm. but then also so you look at a regular size house who has yep. four bathrooms still pays $5,000. So why not scale? Why, but there's, a, there's unfortunately just where we all are. There's just that language that says, this is how we've always done it. And so that's it what like I want to challenge. Well, it's education. The education. It's, it's the education. education. It's the education before the policy. Yes. I think we're trying to do policy before the education and it's not going to work. Right. These are very high level conversations, even internally where people to understand from the building department, what, what is affordable housing to the mayor's office? What is affordable housing? Mm-hmm. And there is no connection for me. If we can get, rid of single family zoning that will be awesome uh, but I think we really have to approach housing as infrastructure and holistically it's also about tax subsidies how we build doesn't require tax subsidies developers want to get a return but the people in the communities who have been there ought to get a return again corporations and civil rights Microsoft is more than a tech company it's also a real estate developer they need to be engaged with from regional, regional economic offices about real estate mm-hmm. so we've got to have a holistic approach to housing and that's not what is happening what do you think is then the, the from a national level then, is there something else that you would like to see from Washington that, that you know, should be on the books as well? 
Well, I mean, we've been following that closely um, because of all of there's been a lot of money put out there um, through Department of Energy in this administration. And so we have actually positioned our company, Maker Studio, as more of a climate tech company than just a construction company, mm -hmm. because we know that building industry is the second most carbon emissive industry on the planet. And so if we can start to talk about um, the sustainability of what we do by using more advanced materials, that, that also advances policy. So we need to make the your connections. Are you solar? Or they use regular utilities? So we use regular utilities, but we are working with a tech company to integrate both renewable energy and mm -hmm. solar panels uh, and localized wastewater treatment for what we are doing. What about you all? Just to jump on the sustainability wagon. Which um, is key. Which is key. Four of our homes are net zero. Mm -hmm. And so we actually partnered with Cove Tool and we did a study. So if you just build smaller, you're already being more sustainable Already. so we yeah. compared the, the cove tool compared 800 square feet regular stick built to a 2,000 square foot regular stick built in all different eight regions of the united states it's make of different regions of mm -hmm. understanding you know temperature wise so the, the at the end of the study just it just showed that being smaller in a footprint you are you are saving Already. so much more money Already. and being so much more sustainable and yeah. less materials utilized to build less went landfill waste exactly so it. it's but we as a nation culturally we think space and and stuff means success. My sister texts me. She wants a tiny house. She's like, four cats. You can't have a tiny house. We with got four her. Cats. We got her. But I'll, oh, you can. We got her. But to your point, Rose, as far as federally, federally, uh, they're working on it. But there's there's a connect. We still have the state level and the and the local level. Mm -hmm. I would love to be able to have more in depth conversations with our representatives, Nakima Williams, yes. and more mayors locally, as well as the governor's office, whatever that looks like in the near future. But those are the conversations that, that we need to have. That's very critical. Atlanta-based sustainability developer Winona Satcher of Maker Studio and Will Johnson, executive director of the award-winning Micro <laughs> award -winning. Life Award <laughs> Institute. Thank you both for coming back. Thank you, Rose. Thank you. It's so good to see you again. Yeah, good yeah. conversations. Uh, well, you've sold my sister, so there's one. We got her. We got her. But again, she's got four cats. I don't know. It's all right. Don't be afraid of diversity, yes. folks. Pets or family members, too. There you go. Density is key. That's right. <laughs> That's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are LaShawn Hudson, Daniel Rezell, and Pat St. Clair. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's always online, wabe.org slash Closer Look. And, of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. I tell you, we have the best bumper music in all of Fulton County. <laughs> Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.